Welcome to Deep Breath In, the podcast from the BMJ, sponsored by Medical Protection, where we tackle the everyday challenges of being a GP. How has your antibiotic prescribing changed over the last year? Has the move to mostly remote consultations led to an increase in antibiotic use? Or have lockdowns and social distancing been an unlikely hero in the battle against antibiotic resistance? Today we'll hear all about this from two leading experts, Geva Greenfield and Benedict Hayhoe, and ask for their top tips on antibiotic prescribing. I'm Tom Nolan, a GP in London and clinical editor for the BMJ. And joining me as usual are the two antibiotic guardians, uh, Navjoy and Jenny. Hi, Jenny, how are you? Hi, Tom. I'm Jenny Rasanathan. I'm a family medicine doctor and clinical editor for the BMJ. And I'm fine, thanks. Good. And Navjoy, hi. Hi, I'm Navjoy Larder, um, head of education at the BMJ and a locum GP in London. Yeah, and... Uh, yeah, well, before we get into antibiotics, um, yeah, just just catch up a bit, shall we? How have you been the last couple of weeks since our last episode? Well, I've been mostly obsessed with Line of Duty, which uh, we had a little talk about in our pre-conversation, and I have been uh, basically reading all the memes and uh, all the YouTube recaps and uh, generally obsessing about it. I came to it very late um, just in lockdown and so it's kind of all very new and exciting for me uh, and Jenny do you have any idea what we're talking about uh no <laughs> but I'm excited <laughs> to find out I'll look it up it sounds really interesting oh, and what have you been up to the last couple of weeks yeah I mean same old same old um my parents are both now fully vaccinated against COVID-19 and they Yay. went out for their first dinner with another vaccinated couple, which I thought was really adorable. Um, That's cute. Grateful that they're able to do that safely. Tom, what's been up with you? Yeah, I've been, I've been very, very busy. Uh, I suppose the main thing we've had to decide this week is whether we're going to continue with the vaccination program as, mm. with our practice as part of our primary care network. So we've got through all the over 50s. I'm very proud. We've Yay. done great and all our team have done amazingly. Uh, yeah, but then, you know, that's just the over 50s and, and the, the, the clinically vulnerable. Uh, there's that many uh, all, all again to vaccinate, plus all the second vaccines that we haven't even started yet. So that, yeah, we had some interesting discussions about that and uh, we've decided to go for it, but we're not quite sure how we're going to staff it or how we're going to run a the general practice <laughs> as well. I know a lot of people, a lot of other practices have decided not to continue. Mm. Um, and I can really understand why. Mm. Yeah, well, oh, well done though for carrying on. Yeah, well, not really. I'm just sort of standing by kind of on the, on the periphery. I'm not, not so involved in it as some of my um, partners and practice manager and others, but so yeah it's great I'm very proud what would be the reason forgive my ignorance what would be the reason why you couldn't just kind of continue offering it as a part of normal practice like any other vaccination or can you yeah well we well um because of the numbers really that we're asked to perform so we get sent i think in in the two weeks time or easter easter friday good friday we're going to be sent like three thousand doses of pfizer vaccine to use in you know, well, staggered slightly, but basically we have to vaccinate 
three or four thousand people mm. in six days. Gosh. Uh, and basically, you, you need a lot of vaccinators just just plowing through these patients. Um, and yeah, but we also still have to comply with our NHS GP contracts. Uh, so there are some places have have trained up non-clinical staff to, to administer vaccines. I think probably we, we will do that now. But, um, you know, we've got like eight or nine GPs and nurses at any one time giving the, these vaccines, which, which is brilliant. But, you know, the, 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 the workload uh, and the demand from the our usual sort of demand has, has skyrocketed as well. Aww. I think it seems... So are people starting to kind of yeah. come back to see to see you guys in person now? Uh, not not directly in person, but certainly on, on because we, we won't let them without talking to us first. Or um, we've also switched on a, an online um, sort of online consultation software because we have to as part of our contract, mm-hmm. uh, and that seems to have opened the floodgates. I have to say, and uh, mm. you know, just people sending in all sorts of. Um, what usually seem quite minor things, but um, it's a real balancing act, isn't it? This um, continuing to roll out the vaccine and, and provide general practice to your mm. existing population—it's really, really tough. Mm. But amazing that you know we're you know, looking at globally and you know that kind of like pride we've all got. I think in the yeah. UK for, for, for vaccinating so many, and and most have been done in general practice. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Great. Really positive, yeah. Yeah. So, uh should we talk a bit about antibiotics? Because mm. um I think when we've been brainstorming what to focus on in these episodes, uh we've often wondered about well, what about the things that haven't got so much attention this last year but maybe have changed a bit. I think antibiotic prescribing we thought might be one of them. Um have you do you think your your practice has changed, Navjoy? Do you think your more liberal with your prescribing let's say perhaps because you're not seeing people in person so much um no i don't i don't think i'm more liberal <laughs> I, yeah i don't think i have i haven't looked at kind of my data but i i think if anything i'm more thoughtful um about i i feel like the 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 sort of uh, the the parameters have changed slightly and and what i might perceive as being an expectation uh, from a patient or a parent that has also I feel changed as well um, and also a lot of things that um, you know I might once have kind of considered as being part of a an ERTI an upper respiratory tract infection now we've got like something else that's kind of definitely a viral cause that might be implicated and, and we're sending off lots of people to you know consider getting a test for that before we might even begin to prescribe anything so um, no, I don't think I'm prescribing as much, but it, it, yeah, it's just made me more thoughtful. You know, I, I mean, I'm particularly thinking of um, of respiratory tract symptoms when I when I talk about this. So, you know, anyone with a cough, anyone with a sore throat, um, ear, I'm, I'm sort of tending to either you know advise watching and waiting or um, bringing people in if I'm if I'm not sure. Mm. Yeah. Um. I think one of the things I've become slightly obsessed with this this last year is the pretest probability. Mm. <laughs> oh, you've become then, a, a Bayes a Bayesian. I think so. Yeah. Does that, does that make me a, a Bayesian? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it's kind of been thrown thrown all over the place, hasn't it? By 
social distancing and COVID. And um, as we talked about in our flu episode, that, uh, you know, if, if nobody's had the flu pretty much this year, then um, then obviously that's one diagnosis that's kind of not really there. Uh, and I must say, I've hardly seen any like children with sniffy noses and coughs in the last year. Uh, so when you do see one, does that mean that they're more likely to have a bacterial infection, less likely or, or what? Yeah, it's a really good point. <laughs> it's a really good point. You're seeing a different case mix. This is something that I spoke with um, Geva and Benedict about in my interview with them. So shall we have a listen to them? Sure. I'm Dr. Geva Greenfield. I'm a research fellow at the Department of Primary Care and Public Health at the School of Public Health, Imperial College London. And I'm, I'm Benedict Hayhoe. Uh, I'm a GP and uh, uh, um, a clinical lecturer uh, in the Department of Primary Care and Public Health at Imperial College London. When it comes to antibiotic prescribing, the latest data uh, which is both national data and, the, and London data show a decrease in the number of prescribing uh, comparing to last year. However, given the decrease in the absolute number of appointments, the, the number of prescriptions is still almost 7% higher than it's expected, which might reflect mm. uh, inappropriate uh, prescribing, which, which is done in, in telephone consultations. Um, another uh, element that is seen in the data is that uh, even though there is a general reduction in antibiotic prescribing, um, there is an increase in prescribing of the wide range uh, antibiotics, uh, which is reasonable, and this is particularly in older patients. And this might be a result of uh, uh, GPs facing less certainty while they uh, diagnose and, uh, and speak with the patients and they're unable to assess them as they can uh, in a face-to-face -face meeting and perform the basic tests. So uh, this might create a tendency towards uh, prescribing wide range antibiotics to cover a, a wider range of potential infections. Mm. Hmm. That is so interesting. So what I hear you saying is that it's possible that we are seeing greater prescribing given the number of telephone calls and telephone consultations, um, but also the type of antibiotics that are being prescribed is different. We're prescribing broader spectrum antibiotics, which are most likely worse for the threat of antimicrobial resistance. Um, Gev has mentioned broad spectrum and uh, and some specific antibiotics that have been prescribed more frequently during the pandemic. Uh, that's been shown in uh, several studies, Imperial study and uh, another study based in Oxford. Um, the two studies looking talked about different antibiotics. There seems to be increased prescribing in Kermoxiclav, um, a broad spectrum antibiotic. And also in some, some other specific antibiotics, azithromycin, for which there has been suggestion it could be a useful, and that and, and, and doxycycline could be a useful antibiotic 
in COVID-19 mm-hmm. for various reasons. Evidence from the study in Oxford suggests that is not the case, but that may be an explanation for why uh, we might see that um, prescribed more. Two other antibiotics, doxycycline and amoxicillin, are specifically uh, recommended in national guidelines um, for pneumonia of unclear cause. Mm-hmm. And so, and the imperial study has demonstrated that the antibiotics prescribed within 14 days of COVID-19 infection tend to be at doxycycline and, and amoxicillin. That seems entirely appropriate um, uh, uh, if we are suspecting um, uh, a superimposed pneumonia, uh, community acquired pneumonia on top of uh, COVID-19 infection. Mm-hmm. Um, the increase in the broad spectrum antibiotic at the Kermoxitab is obviously concerning and, um, uh, and, and I suspect is explained as Geva described by uncertainty and a perception that that will cover my infection, whatever mm-hmm. it might be, because I'm not quite sure what it is and I can't assess the patient properly. And, and that, uh, that so, so that I think is the is the big stewardship issue here in this data, um, uh, really for me. We already know a little bit about what influences antibiotic prescribing. So could you tell us a little bit about what might be changing our behavior with respect to antibiotic prescriptions? Yes, indeed. There, there, there is. You know, there's quali- qualitative evidence that. A wide variety of factors um, are involved in in GPs' pre- decisions to prescribe antibiotics, and indeed in individuals' decisions to seek antibiotics. But there are there are also widely perpetuated uh, myths and false beliefs. For example, a widespread belief amongst um, practitioners that patients um, are demanding of antibiotics and. In actual fact, qualitative evidence suggests that that is, it's often quite the opposite, that the patients want um, information, they want a diagnosis, they want support and explanation, and, uh, and they want to be able to manage their condition and their life. And uh, that might mean getting their children back to school, or it might mean them being able to work and, and things like that. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they want a prescription for antibiotics. You know, we have to remember that antibiotics are um, a, a very specific um, medication for a very specific condition, which is bacterial infection. The, the, the big message, I think, is that we should be using them for that and we shouldn't be using them for other stuff. And other, by other stuff, I mean managing other patient concerns or physician concerns, um, anxiety about, about risk, uh, uncertainty about diagnosis uh, and uh, uh, and such like. Mm-hmm. I really hear what you're saying about using um, them for moments when there's clear evidence of infection, as opposed to our anxiety or uncertainty. And I wonder if you could say a little bit more about uncertainty. So basically, in uh, looking at the literature. Uh, about uh, uh, teleconsultations, the general uh, view is that uh, teleconsultations are in teleconsultations there is higher rate of uh, 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 antibiotics prescribing, and uh, various reasons why why it happens. Uh, it might be, uh, and may, maybe Benedict could could uh, elaborate on it. Uh, it might be. Um, the different dynamics of the uh, face-to-face consultation versus the uh, telephone consultation. 
uh, it might be uh, the fact that uh, uh, there is um, less or more time to speak or, or other factors which, which are ingrained in the patient-physician communication, which is so different between face-to-face -face consultation and the uh, uh, te telephone consultation mm -hmm. or a video consultation. Yeah, so we, we speculated in, I say speculated, there is, there is qualitative uh, evidence supporting a, a number of our suggestions, but I guess we could probably categorise what might be going on in, into two sort of broad, uh, broad groups. One is sort of changes in presentation and case mix, and the other is, is this, the, the, the change in the model, of, uh, the model of care, and obviously, and how GPs are practising, and obviously those two, two things are, are very much um, overlapping in their effects, but we've had this enormously dramatic change in the way that healthcare is delivered to this total triage model in the, in the UK and uh, I believe in many other countries, a similar approach. So we've got actual and perceived access problems for, for, for patients. Um, we've got people fearing contact with healthcare services mm. and, and and that's, I mean, maybe that's less talked about, but something I certainly have seen amongst my patients this, uh, as well, this kind of reluctance to, to put pressure on the health service. There's a great deal of respect and support for the NHS, particularly at this time. And, and people have been, been delaying healthcare contacts because they don't want to bother the doctor because they know that the doctor is very busy. And, and so, mm -hmm. uh, so that, that, that is altering case mix, I think, as well. Um, and then. Then there's the actual um, impact of COVID and its symptoms, I suspect. So we've got a, a, an acute illness which um, has um, uh, a few key symptoms, but quite overlapping with many other mm -hmm. acute viral illnesses. And, um, and so if they have a cough and a, a, and a fever at the moment, they're likely to seek a COVID test, aren't they? Mm -hmm. And then they wait for the result. And the result, if the result comes back positive, then we, you know we know what it is. Is if the result comes back negative, they're likely to be reassured, and uh, they and and they're probably less likely to seek healthcare advice at that time. They've already waited a few days and may already be getting better. And so uh, I suspect that's what we're seeing in the research that Gavin mentioned, with uh, um, a substantial reduction in presentation of respiratory tract infections and other infectious diseases. They're, people are self-managing um, uh, and then of course we've got the effect of social distancing measures which um, mm -hmm. is clearly going to have an effect on everything every other infectious illness um, so we've got a very different group of people presenting to GPs perhaps later in their illness uh, and then we've got the limitation of the consulting method mm -hmm. um, in that uh, you know you you can't uh, you can't examine the patient uh, physically by telephone um, and uh, even by video. That's extremely limited, and so substantially increased uh, risk and uncertainty in possibly a group of patients who are already uh, longer into their illness than we would not often be used to seeing. Uh, and then we've got this sort of uh, huge pressure anyway in terms of trying to manage things quickly and effectively and ideally close consultations uh, rather than calling people in. So, so all of those latter aspects may 
may kind of explain increased um, prescribing, but equally the differing case mix is, is, is likely to um, explain to some extent the reduction in, mm. in presentation, but also uh, uh, overall prescribing reductions because um, we're, we're simply, we're not that, that far fewer people are coming um, to primary care. So Natra, you said earlier that you, well, you've been thinking more deeply about <laughs> about your prescribing, but do you think you've changed the antibiotic that you choose when you do prescribe? Because that, that's something that hadn't really occurred to me, that I might be changing what I prescribe rather than maybe when I prescribe. Well, uh, the practice in which I prescribe and the CCG in which I prescribe would not be happy with me prescribing <laughs> comoxiclav liberally. So I definitely haven't been prescribing much of that. But um, maybe I, 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 um, I, I don't know. I think for those patients where I feel uncertain, that uncertainty, I have to say I have coped by bringing those people in I, I don't think I have yeah. prescribed more liberally and I know I mean what um, Benedict was saying about this sort of pressure to close consultations that definitely exists and I I'm feel very that definitely resonated but I haven't uh, I think mm. I would tend to either safety net or or bring people in rather yeah. than issue a broad spectrum prescription yeah. it's a bit of a worry isn't it if that is what is happening yeah <laughs> uh, I, I think where where I work at least, then I feel like that isn't. But um, like we like you say, we bring people in, and you kind of if you're going to prescribe, you prescribe for the thing you're you're treating, not yeah. just because you're not quite sure what's going on. Yeah, Is that, that, maybe I'm being a bit over the top there. Um, but I had the same impression when I was speaking to them. You know, I I was really interested to hear about the change in prescribing rates. Um, but the thing that surprised me most, or one of the things that surprised me most, was was the actual change in antibiotics we were giving. And I think that does really reflect on the challenge of getting a sense of how people are doing over the phone, um, issues about bringing those people in, you know, perhaps, you know, they're not doing well or don't want to come in and they're just kind of or saying poor mobility. Yeah, perhaps yeah. a mobility issue, perhaps, you know, shielding or vulnerability. Um, yeah. And, you know, probably, you know, a loved one who's quite worried about them. Um, and and I think it is a, re a really interesting idea, you know, what can I give as a prescription to kind of cover mm. this patient just in case there is something going on that isn't apparent to me over this video consultation or telephone consultation? Um, which, of mm. course, is like not great practice, right? And um, they'll tell us more about that in the next clip. But um, it, it did make me wonder, you know... Kind of going back to what you were saying earlier, Tom, like really thinking carefully about your pretest probabilities and really kind of going back to the basics of, okay, what are the actual possible sources of bacterial infection here that I need to be worried about and therefore how am I targeting therapy? Mm. Mm. Yeah. At this point, I want to give a quick plug, actually, to an article that we published in November last year, which was covering this exact topic about antibiotic prescribing for respiratory tract 
infections during the pandemic, essentially, and sort of asking that question of what signs and symptoms in the presentation and in the history would make you uh, consider um, a bacterial cause more than others. So um, we can link to that in the show notes because I think it's a really good, clear article. And one of the things that I found really interesting in that article, um, it talks about the evidence for barriers to um, sort of antimicrobial stewardship. And, you know, we we know that, you know, for a lot of respiratory tract infections again particularly which we think might have a viral cause that that our rates of antibiotic prescribing probably aren't where they need to be we we still seem to prescribe antibiotics for those and the article talks a bit about the evidence um looking into why that happens and i think one of the reasons we often default to is that there's a patient expectation that will be that they'll be prescribed antibiotics but from the evidence cited in that article that actually doesn't exist but what is a stronger predictor for antibiotic prescribing is a clinician perception that the patient expects antibiotics and that's such a fundamental difference i think and one that probably gets to the amount of time we have within a consultation to really explore um, a patient's expectations. And, you know, often we might make an assumption about what we think is going on and give a prescription. But I just thought that was fascinating. Mm. Anyway, that article is well worth checking but, out. But, but you have, have you ever had a patient who's said, I'm not leaving this room until you give me a prescription for antibiotics? I mean, we, that still happens, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you still you still have all you know. Well, I was prescribed this last time, uh, or yeah, I know it, yeah. I know it won't get better without without antibiotics. Yeah. And those are the patients who would probably benefit most from that time to really kind of go into things. But you know, obviously that time doesn't exist. <laughs> but we could all we could all be that um, that GP that our colleagues will thank us for in the future for kind of not not repeating that pattern and no. doing the prescription, but. It's okay. so hard. All it's right. so hard in practice. I'll try. I'll try harder. <laughs> well, I'm often the locum that probably everyone will yeah, slag off afterwards and be like, "Oh, well, she's all right for her. She's not coming back here." But yeah, <laughs> isn't your trick to, come back? <laughs> isn't it to say, "Oh, I come back. You know, come back in two weeks when when I'm not here. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> come and see someone else." Oh, Tom, you're exposing all my all the tricks of my trade. Yeah. <laughs> No, I don't do that. I'm very good. And if any practice wants to hire me, I'm available. <laughs> no, I'm joking. <laughs> uh, so we've got a second part to the interview. I think we're getting on to some more like more sort of practical things. Is that right, Jenny, about what we can be doing differently or how we can adapt to all this? Yeah. So I, I asked them a little bit about how we can do a better job of managing our own uncertainty as opposed to throwing the kitchen sink antibiotic at somebody what are some of the strategies that we can use um, even over teleconsultations and even when we're still not kind of back to business as usual for um, making sure that we are providing evidence-based care that is also um, not exacerbating antimicrobial resistance? Great. Uh, and that will be coming up after this from our sponsor. When you're a GP, you're not just nine to five. Being a GP is part of who you are, whatever the time of day. So when it comes to your indemnity, you need someone you can turn to at any time. Medical protection is always here for you, with expert medico-legal advice, including 24-7 in an emergency. We don't just cover patient claims. We're also here to provide support and legal representation 
when it comes to GMC inquiries, coroner inquests, criminal investigations and more. Online, we offer risk prevention courses and webinars to keep you up to date with current news, risks and legislation. We also go the extra mile when it comes to your well-being. With a free counselling service and e-care app, we're helping members take positive steps to better mental and physical health. It's the protection your career deserves, all in one place. And if you're about to qualify or have recently qualified, we can help you take the next step in your career with savings on membership for newly qualified GPs. To find out more, visit medicalprotection.org. And now let's go back to the second half of Jenny's interview. a paper that we published in the education section last year, which was looking at respiratory tract infections in the context of COVID-19. And um, the authors of that paper almost make the point and perhaps do make the point that um, we really shouldn't be prescribing antibiotics remotely at all, that it's really not appropriate for a remote consultation. And I wonder if you can offer your thoughts on that, you know, especially based on what you're seeing coming out of the data that we're prescribing broader spectrum antibiotics, which are most likely worse for the threat of antimicrobial resistance. Should we prescribe, um, should we prescribe remotely um, at all? I think, um, you know, as with everything, it's, it's probably more nuanced than, than that recommendation. Uh, you know, I can think of situations where uh, it, it is entirely appropriate to prescribe remotely. I think, uh, for example, uh, a clear-cut lower urinary tract infection in a, in a woman who has experience of these before is very confident in her symptoms uh, guidelines would recommend that we don't um, that we don't do laboratory testing for that. So, and we can prescribe antibiotics. So, what uh, in many cases, what would uh, a face-to-face consultation add? And that example brings me to what I, I think my suggestion would be in terms of a you know how how do we approach this? If and and I hope that is what I sometimes try to do myself is if as a GP or another or other primary care pres- prescriber, you're considering prescribing antibiotics remotely, uh, it's maybe worth stopping and thinking, would seeing this person face-to-face potentially affect my decision to prescribe? Mm. Um, if the answer is no, then it's probably a clear-cut condition of the, of the type that I just mentioned, and it's probably reasonable to prescribe those antibiotics. If the answer is yes, then uh, that suggests that I should be finding some other way to manage mm. my uncertainty. And it's likely organizing for them to be seen in person or alternative methods of, uh, of managing risk. And that might be a follow-up phone call in, in a couple of days' time or perhaps delayed prescribing, um, which is, is, is another way of managing risk and uncertainty and one that a, a good strength of evidence demonstrates is effective. Um, 
the majority of um, uh, delayed prescriptions are not actually cashed in or they're not used. Uh, so that's you know, other ways to manage uncertainty. Um, but I think that's, that's, that, that's the question we should be asking ourselves. I think the way you're framing this as managing our own uncertainty is really helpful and also thought provoking. Um, because I think so many times we understand a consultation as managing a clinical problem that a patient has, as opposed to really conscientiously managing our own reactions to that problem and our own uncertainty really with how to approach it. Um, so I find that really thought provoking. Um, and I'm glad you brought us back to delayed prescriptions because that was something I wanted to go back to. Um, you know, whether you see this for the rest of the pandemic and beyond as in some ways a better, more responsible alternative because you're kind of encouraging the patient to give themselves the tincture of time before filling that prescription. Um, or what you see as reasons why perhaps that wouldn't be a good idea. Um, reasons why it might not be a good idea. I think uh, some doctors are uncomfortable with the uh, with the idea of delayed prescription. They feel that it conveys one's uncertainty to the patient, uh, and it gives mixed mixed messages. If I say I think you've got a viral infection, but here you go, have some antibiotics and take them in a few days, that it doesn't get better. Uh, that is that is that sending mixed messages. I think I don't feel that is the case. I don't think that uh, research evidence supports that as a, a an experience of patients. Um, and actually, if uh, explained um, effectively, delayed prescribing can be a very useful tool indeed. It, it, it potentially has future benefits in terms of reconsulting and uh, future ability to to self manage. In terms of another element that I wanted to, to say something is that we touched a bit about patient experience and patient satisfaction. Mm. So the, the whole issue of teleconsultations will reshape the, the uh, patient-physician uh, uh, communication. And it will require both patients and GPs to, to learn new ways of, commu of communication. Absolutely. I think that's I think that's such an important point. And there's a lot of conversation right now about, you know, what um, those interactions will look like when, you know, enough people are vaccinated, as people slowly start to resume face-to-face -face, um, consultations. And so when we're back in that environment and as we figure out how to integrate teleconsultations, um, can you speak to what we can do to make sure that we are good stewards for antimicrobial resistance, um, you know, further than following guidelines that we can about appropriate prescribing? Uh, remote consulting is here to stay, isn't it? So how do we how do we continue to be good antibiotic stewards in that context? And I say continue because mm. we you know we have seen sustained improvements in antibiotic prescribing uh, leading up to the pandemic. I suppose there are there are potentially patient factors in in terms of demand. And again, previous research would suggest that as a general rule, patients are not demanding of antibiotics, but 
nevertheless, uh, uh, there, there could be a possibility that a, a more transactional element to the to the um, consultation process might might increase that sense of demand, if not actual demand, um, and, and find ways to to manage that. And what one way uh, may often be simply asking patients what what they want. We may often be surprised by the answer. Uh, and another, you know, we mentioned um, delayed prescribing. I think that's uh, that's an effective way to to give patients responsibility. Uh, and then there's the issue of managing uncertainty. And uh, and and I think, as I said, I, I really think we should be we should be thinking uh, all the time. Is my prescribing decision? This is not limited, of course, to antibiotics. You mm. know, it could be for a variety of other conditions where. I'm in some kind of diagnostic difficulty. Is this diagnostic difficulty at least partly because of the consulting method that I'm using? Hmm. And if it is, we have to find some other way to manage that. Prescribing is not the answer. I was also um, thinking before speaking with you all about other elements that go into prescribing and looking at some of the other literature you've generated and this idea of antibiotic effectiveness as well, right? And I think that if perhaps we had a better understanding of the evidence behind antibiotic effectiveness, it could also change our prescribing patterns. Um, I think having a better sense of the actual data about how, what, you know, the natural history of things and how many people improve on their own would really support um, kind of more thoughtful prescribing. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I think, you know, another myth that uh, we shouldn't, you know, it's too complicated or too time consuming or, uh, or, or not understandable for patients to share trial data. I think we can, mm. we can do that. I think, I think saying to a patient, you know, this may be a bacterial infection, but evidence suggests that I would need to treat 400 people like you in order to, <laughs> to, to prevent one adverse event with antibiotics. Uh, it's a pretty powerful message from those people. Just to complement on what Benedict has just said, um, another element is uh, patient education. So in the UK, there are currently a campaign to kind of... Uh, reflect to patients of the, the, the myth of antibiotics. So say antibiotics will not make you met better as you think, and it might create other consequences that are not good for your own health. Mm -hmm. So this might change um, the uh, patient uh, demand. So there is actually two human beings speaking to each other. One is a doctor and one is a patient. And both of them come with an agenda and, and abilities to, to this conversation. And um, so if we can, inf so we talked a lot about how would uh, the GP make the assessment and how do they manage their own uncertainty? Do they ask the patient to come again to, to, mm -hmm. to, the, to the practice or how do they approach it? But there is the element of what level of expectation or demand which comes from, from patient, it might take a few years for this myth of, you know, I, I need antibiotics because I have fever. So mm -hmm. antibiotics will, will be helpful for me. And this might also shape the uh, uh, demand from, mm -hmm. uh, from patients. 
and as, as we discussed, uh, the, the nature of this conversation will change. I mean, is it more difficult for the GP to say no in a face-to-face -face consultation or is it easier to say uh, because there is kind of physical presence mm -hmm. and then it's perhaps may maybe even easier to say no over the phone because <laughs> less of like element of you know the apparent disappointment of yeah. how do we how do we deal with the presence of the patient so what i'm trying to say is that uh, the the quality and the nature of consultations might be say in 10 years time or five years time will change in 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 different ways and uh, because the the way that primary care uh, provision is, is 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 changing um well it's kind of funny that they mentioned uti as, as an example there because um and, and this is a genuine coincidence but um just i think being published next week we've got a uh, an article by uh, Tammy Hoffman, is the lead author, uh, about UTI in women. We asked um, Tammy Hoffman and and her colleagues to um, to think about this from a shared decision making point of view and really kind of dive into the evidence because just what they were saying there on the, on your interview with them, Jenny, like how can you really have a consultation, a shared decision making consultation, as we like to try and have if if you don't actually know <laughs> what the um, what the evidence is about you know, the natural history of UTIs, I was really interested in, and you know how effective is an antibiotic course. Um, so I can give you some sort of spoilers from that. It's not been published for another few days, but if you're interested, yes, please. Oh, it's a deep breath in exclusive. Yeah, go for it. <laughs> it is. It is. Um, so the natural course of a UTI. So they, the authors have done a systematic review of this and. They found from the placebo arms of trials, they, their analysis found that over the first nine days, the percentage of people who were symptom-free or reported improved symptoms was 42%, and by six weeks, 36%. Mm. So um, when you're thinking about, well, what would happen if nothing, you know, if we didn't do anything, then I guess you, you might be able to say to someone, well, r roughly, you know, four out of 10 people after nine days, um, will be feeling somewhat better or better, which <laughs> might not sound very very good, but uh, <laughs> Jenny's shaking her head. No, for anyone who's had a UTI, <laughs> I do not want to live with that for nine days, let alone six weeks. Yes. No, thank you. <laughs> um, and the rate of serious complications was low um, and the progression to pyelonephritis only in one patient in the placebo arms of the trials that they were looking at. Um, but they were able to actually find a kind of quantitative you know, a number to put on the risk of um, progression to pyelonephritis, which, I, you know, listening to patients with these symptoms is often one of the things they say. So I just want to make sure it's not going to my kidneys or mm. that's a reason for people often would, would be calling you. So that's natural history. Uh, and then what difference do antibiotics make? Uh, uh, and this is where there hasn't been a synthesis of trials or data, placebo-controlled trials uh, for uncomplicated UTI in women under 65. And so actually we don't know how effective antibiotics are. Uh, and and this is a problem, isn't it? Because, you know, I guess we 
we assume that they're very effective and that within a day or two of taking them, then symptoms have improved. That's what I tend to say to people. And if they haven't, then you're getting them to call back and doing a culture, etc. But um, it's a bit of a problem for having that conversation if you're not really able to say what, <laughs> how effective it is. Also, that's incredible that a problem that is so common and so, um, mm. you know, something we prescribe so widely for that we don't have an evidence base for that. That I find, yeah, just amazing. But yeah, I agree with you that um, shared decision making, obviously we all kind of aspire to that, but it's hard when you're kind mm. of winging it. Mm. <laughs> I love the, the kind of double standard with it. And that We are often say to people, well, I'm sorry, but there's no evidence that uh, cranberry juice makes any difference in, in antibiotic, in, in, in UTI. Um, <laughs> oh, but by but the way, antibiotics same... don't. Yeah, either. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, uh, the other thing is about a delayed prescription. So they, they found a, a cohort study in Amsterdam of, of, of um, women who were uh, asked by their GP to delay antibiotic treatment uh, for UTI. And 37% of women in that study said that they were willing to do so. So, um, you know, that's a, a reasonable number, isn't it, that, that would be willing to consider delaying antibiotics Um Mm, interesting. I'm curious what you both have experienced with respect to explaining the uncertainty or even kind of evidence behind this decision making to patients, because that was something Benedict and Geva talked mm. about is, you know, um, sometimes people feel reluctance to allude to any diagnostic uncertainty on mm. our part. You know, the actual conversation about, well, this could be an infection, but it could also be something else. And therefore, would you consider a delayed prescription if you're not feeling better or unless you have, you know, additional symptoms that develop? And then this idea similarly of actually having the conversation with patients of, you know, the number needed to treat or number needed to harm in the setting of antibiotic prescribing. What have your experiences with that been? Well, I've, I, I feel, I was thinking this as, as I was listening to the interview, I feel like my practice has shifted over time where I have become much more, um, you know, my approach often is to share my uncertainty with patients, not always, but um, more often than not, I find it just, I have a better conversation and a better consultation if I'm explaining my rationale, explaining why I'm not sure. And, um, you know, using that as part of a management plan, you know, well, I'm not sure about this, so come back or you know, whatever, whatever that might be. And I mean, that is in the context of me as a locum, I mean, we've talked about case mixes. My case mix often is generally a younger, less comorbid patient population because I'm seeing the people who just want an acute on the day consultation. And so that may make that sort of approach easier, but I've definitely found that to be um, helpful um, over time. The, the thing about shared decision-making and sharing numbers needed to treat, I don't do that because I, I don't know those numbers <laughs> and I don't have, um, I don't know off the top of my head good resources to kind of use within a consultation so I haven't I don't, I don't do that mm -hmm. I don't know about you Tom yeah I find it um it does help to be working two days a week on the education pages of the BMJ to, to, right. to have to 
<laughs> actually know something for once. Um, but it does oh, depend. Oh, you're selling yourself short. <laughs> oh. you, you knew stuff before you came to the BMJ, yeah, I'm no, sure. Well, <laughs> it's harder. It's harder to share your uncertainty when most of that uncertainty is because you don't know and you don't sort of know because actually nobody knows. Um, mm. So when, I, when I'm confident it's not me, it's, it's the evidence. <laughs> yeah. That goes better. Yeah, <laughs> but I think the other kind of elephant in the room in this whole conversation is about time, isn't it? And yeah, uh, we really put a high value on antibiotic stewardship, um, and the way to improve your antibiotic stewardship is to take more time with the patient and explain things kind of better. But although it, I, I take the point that it doesn't necessarily take you know a huge amount more time to to go into these things, but um, certainly when you're on the phone deciding whether or talking to somebody about whether they're going to come in and, and see you in person as well as have this phone call, then there's a, there's a big time um, implication there. And um, it's the thing that I don't think gets much weight and we're expected to just add them onto your list or you know, go on to another hour of your clinic. You know, and there is a tension there. And we, we don't, I don't think we've, we um, acknowledge that enough. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. I mean, time is just for all GPs, like, you know, your experience of uh, of a clinic, of a session, of a consultation, time is just looming over you the whole time. Uh, and yeah, in this scenario as well, I think it is um, really, um, you know, it's a huge factor. Yeah, and it's on a podcast too. And I guess we, we might be running out of time. Nicely done. Um, is that... Uh, Tom, your segues have just that, like really they're amazing, top notch. Yeah. yeah. So thanks to Geva and Benedict, and thank you. Thanks, to Tom. See you Jenny next time. Joy. We'll see you next time, Jenny. Jenny, you were muted and looking away. You, you checked out. Hey, yes. <laughs> and uh, thank you. See you, next, see you time. next time. Thanks. Good to see you. Please uh, rate us on your podcast players and uh, tell your colleagues about us. And it'd be great to hear um, from some of our listeners. If you want to get in touch, you can email us practice at bmj. That's it for now. See you next time.